We all have have ways that we self-soothe, and some of those ways we picked up at very young ages because that was what we taught, were taught, or that was what became available to us. And over time, they've been become habits that have been maladaptive mm-hmm. behaviors that are at one time it was adaptive it helped me to survive this yeah and now it's become maladaptive and it's harming me and my relationships and if we can look at it in that way then we can get some work done but if we look at it in the frame of shame and criticism then we just stay in the cycle Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Boat. All right, friends. Today, Lindsay and I have the privilege of introducing you to another brilliant on-site guide, Debbie Reed. Throughout the year, Debbie comes to one of our campuses and leads our group experiential programs and is such a trusted voice. But as a therapist in her private practice in Salt Lake City, Debbie works with individuals and couples where unwanted sexual behaviors or compulsions have caused havoc on their lives and their relationships. She works mostly with individuals and couples to address the deep roots of trauma for both parties involved in infidelity or sexual betrayal. This conversation was so illuminating and full of empathy surrounding what I think is a somewhat stigmatized and difficult topic. A couple of years ago, Debbie and I did a webinar together, and I knew that I wanted to bring her on the podcast to discuss the complexity of infidelity and the immense trauma and the turmoil involved. Debbie speaks candidly, and she brings a trauma-informed approach to this topic. She speaks kindly about the necessity for everyone, no matter their relationship status, to do their own work and the profound impact it can have on our most intimate relationships. I'm so grateful for the empathy and expertise that Debbie brings to this topic, and I think this is one that we can all learn from. So without further ado, meet our friend, Debbie Reed. I'm just so excited to sit down and chat with you. Yeah, thank you. Some of my favorite conversations really recently have been with our guides because you get the language and we get to see a little bit more of the heart of OnSite. And so thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks. How long have you been with OnSite? I think, I feel like you know the answer to that question better than I do, Lindsay, because didn't I meet you right at, yeah. so I think so it's- about four years? That's what I was going to wow. say, four years. I think so. So I came to OnSite. I do a psychodrama training group in Orange County, mm-hmm. and several of the people in my group have been to OnSite and have been guides here. And one day, one of my friends said, "Let's go," because I, I had no idea what OnSite was. And yeah. He said, "Let's go to OnSite and do a program." And I said, "Okay." Everyone said, "Linda owes the best." So I called up and I said. I would like to come there. I had no idea what I was in for. (laughs) I would like to come there. I need to come either in May or October because I'm not going to spend the summer in in Tennessee. And I need Linda O as my guide. And so they said, okay. And we came in May and I got Linda O and she was wonderful. It was a wonderful Mm -hmm. experience. And at the end of the program, 
she gave me a hug goodbye. She was giving us all a hug goodbye. And she said, would you ever consider to work here? And I was like, well, I live in Utah. And she says, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, just call this person. It was Bill. She said, mm-hmm. call Bill. Here's his number. I'll tell him you're going to call him. And it that took me nine months to call him. <laughs> oh, wow. Because <laughs> I just couldn't wrap my brain around how it could work for yeah. me to do this. So anyway, I'm glad I finally called. And, and I've loved it's one of my favorite things I do mm. professionally. Now it's hard to imagine you not being a yeah. part of the fabric of on-site. Yeah, so I love it. It feels like you've been around for even longer than that. Yeah, it feels like that way to me also. I was When you said four years, it surprised me because I was thinking you, obviously, your reputation precedes you when it comes to mm-hmm. our guides. And so I was assuming you were much longer than that. That's really cool. Yeah, I think probably because I've cut, like last year I was here a lot. 18 times. That's a lot. That's more yeah. than once a month. <laughs> Yes, it was a lot. That touches on something that we talk a lot about at an on-site is that a lot of our guides, or really all of them, do their own work. Mm-hmm. And so you came to on-site as a participant before you started working there. What was that experience like for you? You were had already been a therapist and done a lot of psychodrama oh, work, so you were yeah. familiar with the modalities. and Yeah. I had never really done it like that in a group. And so it was, I mean, I'm like everybody. I was nervous. I was afraid to be vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. then I just was really touched and really moved. And I was able to do, I do a lot of my own work. I think it's really important as as humans, but also as therapists, that we do our own work. I feel like if I don't do, if I'm not continually doing my own work, then when I am with a client or in a group, some of my own stuff will get in the way. Yeah. And that happens when I, and if I have an awareness that my own history is in the room, then I can do something about it. If I don't have an awareness about that, then I start behaving in ways that I might with someone from my history instead Mm. of the person who's in front of me. So I'm, I do, I have my own therapist. I have an individual therapist a couples therapist, lots of friends who are therapists. Mm-hmm. And then I'm part of two training groups where I do my own work. I love that you said that because I think it's kind of a normalizing thing for someone to hear who might be going to a therapist to hear you say, there are times when something that's happening in the room is going to activate something in me and it's going to bring something up. And it's not if, it's when, mm-hmm. and you have some plans around that. So what does that look like if you're in a room and the person you're talking to, all of a sudden you recognize it's bringing up something in you. How do you continue to be present for the person you're with and also meet yourself in that? A couple of things. If it, So recently in January I had, I did a group at Onsite and there was someone in the room that uh, them personally did not remind me of someone in my history that I have uh, painful and traumatic experiences with. But the relationship Mm. uh, uh, reminded me physiologically of that. And can you hear my breathing Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. getting tight, just even thinking about it. Yeah. And so I knew what was happening with me and the other person, even though they probably didn't know. 
Yeah. And it was big enough for me that I had to, at the end of group, process with the team and then work with one of my colleagues to do some body work to help me shift and be able to be present. But normally when I don't have something that's that big, I just need to take a moment Mm -hmm. and breathe and presence be, you know, right here, right now. Acknowledge, yes, this is my history and this is coming up and put that aside and step into right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it. One of the words you use when you're first describing the practice of awareness of like, if I'm not aware, I, it's going to kind of come out sideways and I'm going to project my previous experience onto the person in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I even think for people that aren't therapists that are listening, that are holding space for their friends, I think that that interaction happens so often that we're listening to somebody process something and it's bringing up something in us. And if we're not aware, our reactions are oversized or undersized or, you know, like we're so busy putting ourselves in that person's shoes that we're unaware that we've overly stepped into it. Right, Mm. right. So for me, I think the most important part is, can I at least be aware? Can I be aware of what's happening to me Yeah. so that I can choose what my response is going to be? For me, the, it's the anxious feeling, the flooding, tightness in my chest, sweaty armpits. Mm. And I just need to slow down and take a deep breath. And sometimes I'll even talk to myself in the room. And... Either clients don't recognize that I'm talking to myself or they think I'm talking to them. That's so funny. Yeah. Like, what do you say? Yeah. Okay. Slow down. We're going to slow down and we're going to take just a moment and breathe. I love that. I mean, because of course, like if I was in a room with you, I would assume you're just talking to everybody. Yeah. But that it's really you taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. It's really special. Mm -hmm. We can do that too. Yeah. So in this particular time in at onsite for those of our listeners who don't know in groups everyone does like their own quote unquote piece of work mm-hmm. and that piece of work would be a one on one with me and I start out by doing a walk and talk that's part of psychodrama and so it's during that part I always feel a little bit nervous like am I enough it, am I going to have what it takes? Am I going to am I going to be okay? And it's in that walk and talk part that I just say, okay, we're going to take just a moment here, and we're going to walk around, and we're just going to be with ourselves and breathe. And so my clients don't really know that I'm talking to myself. Yeah. Well, they do now because they're listening. (laughs) Yeah, they do now because everyone who has been in a group with you is now tuning in because they saw Uh your name. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. But I'm pretty open about when I show up in the room that I'm, you know, I am anxious too. I'm nervous too. Am I going to be enough? Mm. Because I don't have a magic pill. I think a lot of times people come to therapy and they're like, fix me. And I'm like, I I can't fix you. Mm. I can walk with you. And I will, I don't, I will walk wherever with my clients where they want to go, however deep they want to go. But I can't, I don't have a magic pill. I don't know. I'm not some guru, but I'm just willing to go on the journey with you. Yeah. I think we often say it on site is that you have everything inside of you that you already need. 
Um, it's just having a guide to walk alongside you and help pull that out. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Will you tell us a little bit about your life outside of OnSite um, and the work that you do and who you predominantly work with? Yes. So I have a private practice and uh, it's with Lifestar and that's in Salt Lake City. And we work primarily with addiction, most often process addiction, sex mm-hmm. addiction, I'm also spent a lot of time at a treatment center, so I'm pretty well versed in substance abuse. And my clients generally have some type of unwanted sexual behaviors and compulsions that they don't want that are causing havoc in their lives and their relationships or their partners. Mm. And so there's a lot of trauma on both ends. And to for someone to step so far outside of their personal values and to create such a deep facade of who they really are, mm-hmm. there's a lot of trauma there. Mm-hmm. And then for their partners who discover it's called relational trauma or betrayal trauma, yeah, there's a lot of pain in that also. So I spend most of my time working in that arena. Maybe trauma. Yeah, yeah. And I love it. I, sometimes I feel a little morbid saying that, but I, I just, I, it's one of those things I think was my calling. How did you get into that sort of lane of work within therapy? I did my first year practicum. So when you get your degree, then you have to do like an internship and they call it a practicum. And my first year practicum was at Lifestar. Mm. And I did tons of groups there. And I had one group in particular, a group of men, a men's group. And I just was really close to them. I never left. So my practicum ended and I still stayed just pro bono and and did the group. Mm. And I ended up being with that group for three and a half years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So after I graduated, I stayed at, I had been working at a treatment center and I stayed at the treatment center for a little while until I was able to build up my clientele and transition to being at Lifestar. I love that you, even when you were talking about that group, you just have so much love for them. And I can just see that in your face. Oh, yes. I love those men. That was, and I was really surprised because, I guess, for I'm not going to speak for people in general. I'll speak for me. I had a lot of judgment about the population. Yeah, and it's easy, I think, for me to step back and to be judgmental about choices that people make. Yeah, and for me to get in and to see real human beings and see the heart. I just love, love, love those men. And even the way that you talked about the two different sides of the equation there in the relationship, you talked about a betrayer. I think that's language you've used before. Um, With so much grace and empathy, you said it it is a trauma to veer off from your values that much. And you just had like, I was reflecting on how graceful that statement was. And I think it is reflective of when you get close to someone and see their story, it's really hard to hate or judge when you're up close like that. 
Yeah. Um, but I would love to hear more about like that piece of trauma and, and the stepping aside or that far from your values. So I want to kind of respond to what you just said. Yeah. About compassion and grace. Yeah. I have noticed with my clients that it's really difficult for them to have compassion and grace for themselves. Yeah, mm. but. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult for partners yeah. to have compassion and grace. I bet. For the person that betrayed them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if I think as people in the healing work, it's important for us to always speak with compassion and grace. Otherwise, we are further stigmatizing and creating more trauma. Mm. And so part of my my work in working with betrayers is to help them have compassion and grace for themselves. Yeah. And to help them look at what are the things that have happened to me in my life that I have chosen this way mm-hmm. to self-soothe. Mm. So I can, we self-soothe in lots of different ways. Some whether, are healthier than others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of what ways I self-soothe. And uh, I don't have very many maladaptive self-soothing behaviors. So I was trying to think of what I do to self-soothe. But sometimes we'll do, um, oh, I, I have one where I smell my hair. Mm-hmm. It's weird. I have people say stuff to me all the time, but it's um, I take my hair and just run it. Like when I'm, I do like when I'm thinking, shampoo. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm in a really deep process or anxiety about something, mm-hmm. and you can tell I might be calm on the outside, but you can tell something's going on with me because I'm smelling my hair. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So that's just one way I self soothe. Yeah. Yeah. We all have them, have ways that we self-soothe, and some of those ways we picked up at very young ages because that was what we taught, were taught, yeah. or that was what became available to us. And over time, they've been become habits that have been maladaptive mm-hmm. behaviors that are, at one time it was adaptive, it helped me to survive this, yeah. and now it's become maladaptive. And it's harming me and my relationships. And if we can look at it in that way, then we can get some work done. But if we look at it in the frame of shame and criticism, then we just stay in the cycle. Mm. You know, having compassion and grace, that people have to find help a lot of times. Like um, I have been walking with some friends that have had a betrayal in their marriage and sort of helping them find individual and collective help was a challenge. And even knowing like the first step somebody should take when they realize that their husband's been having an affair or has been looking at a lot of pornography or whatever the thing is, what, what is your advice for somebody sort of that is just beginning to become aware of the, I don't know if dysfunction is the right word, but in their relationship. Yeah. Or the break in their relationship. I would find someone that has worked with a lot of betrayal. Mm. I think there are a lot of well-meaning people that if you haven't done a lot of betrayal, then you it's really easy to let your own stuff get in the way. 
and when we when a therapist lets their own stuff get in the way, especially around this much pain, it can be really messy yeah. on the as as a client. So I'd find someone that that has experience working with betrayal, and I would get into individual therapy and couples therapy and maybe even a group support mm. for both partners. Well, what are some of like the vetting questions that I might ask if I find a therapist a who's idea. a couple therapist and they say they work with couples who have experienced infidelity or that kind of stuff, then what would be some of the questions that I might ask that would indicate oh. this would be a good fit for me or our particular situation? I might ask like what percentage of their mm. clientele. And I think I would not lock myself into one therapist. I'd go and if something happened and I didn't feel comfortable, I'd keep looking. Yeah, yeah that's good. It's good advice. And I would make sure that they had resources for me to get into group. Mm-hmm. I think it's so one of the most important pieces I think about this type of healing journey is to be with people who know and understand mm-hmm. yeah. because it can be normalized. And in our society, there's a lot of stigma around staying with someone who has betrayed me. And there's shame around it and stigma around it. And to be in a group of people that allow you the space, allow me the space to figure out what am I going to do and have similar shared experience is really normalizing and helpful. Mm, That's really helpful. And just practically, when you start seeing a client or you start seeing a couple, do you see, is it productive? Is it even allowed for you to see both sides? Like if I go and I'm seeing a therapist, would I want my husband or my spouse or my partner to see a different therapist? Would we want to have one therapist that's ours together and then each have our own individual? Is that what you said? Yeah. It can get really messy. So I really try hard to, and in our clinic, Mm -hmm. we have multiple therapists. And so I really try hard to have one partner meet with me, one partner meet with the spouse, one uh, and then another therapist as a couples therapist, mm. and then two other therapists that are the group therapists. So one coupleship could potentially have five different therapists. Gotcha. And then we have staffing, mm-hmm. and we can staff and talk about what's happening and and provide support. And sometimes clients don't want it that way. Mm-hmm. And so I I try to... That's ideal. Ideally, for me, I'd like yeah. the situation to have five different therapists. It feels a little safer, at least even just the like partner and you to each have someone separate. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that would be ideal. Ideally, but things don't always work out that way. And yeah. there have been times when I've been the individual therapist for both mm-hmm. clients, and then seen them both as a coupleship. So just works out that yeah. way. I'm just like processing all this. I guess it's it just uh, me being, I'm, I'm grateful for my singleness a bit just because <laughs> I'm the only person that has to get myself on board to go to a therapist. Yeah. Um, but just the challenge of like, is everybody willing to see a therapist? Mm-hmm. And then, 
even having grace for whatever the outcome is, whether it is the couple staying united or them determining that they need or want to separate, that it's sort of the beginning of a journey, I guess, seeing a therapist. Yeah. And it's hard when one partner in the coupleship Mm -hmm. doesn't want to do their work really hard. And it's hard for lots of reasons, but one of the big reasons is because that's the beginning of a deeper separation. When one partnership is going to start taking a look at themselves and look at their behaviors and make changes that are beneficial in their life, and another part of the partnership is unwilling to do that and wants to stay in the same unhealthy patterns, it becomes unsustainable. Hey there. Did you know that the average couple waits six years before seeking professional help in their relationship? When I read this stat, it got me thinking, how often do we enter into autopilot in our most intimate relationship? Life gets busy and we get off track. Throughout this episode, you've heard Debbie talk about the importance of couples intentionally working on their relationship at every stage of health. I want to tell you about Onsite's customized couples intensive. This specialized couples therapy program is designed for one couple to work together with one of our world-class clinicians for an extended time of exploration and healing not normally afforded in a weekly couple session. This program is a great resource for a couple navigating a difficult season, but the customized and personalized planning that goes into it makes this an incredible resource for couples looking to proactively take care of their relationship. Our Couple Intensive is created to meet the specific needs of your relationship. As partners, you collaboratively decide how you want to move forward in your relationship, grounded in intimacy, trust, and respect, and you'll leave with the tools you need to truly see, hear, and create space for one another. If you want to learn more, you can connect with our admissions team at 1-800-341-7432 or email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com. What I hope you hear today, friends, is that something doesn't have to be wrong in your relationship for you to optimize where it's going. We did a webinar together, and I remember you saying anecdotally of the the clients that you work with, the percentage of people who stay together was pretty high because if you're both willing to seek out, you know, care together, reconciliation, and I think I was surprised by that. So I would love for you to, like, even what she was saying of getting everybody on board and getting there in a start of the journey, it can feel like, okay, we want to overcome this betrayal. We want to overcome this trauma together. We want to have reconciliation and repair at the end of this. But it could, I'm sure it would feel daunting. Yeah. So you often do see yeah. an outcome. Most often, I can think of a handful of clients that have ended in divorce. Mm-hmm. But if the clients are, if my clients are both coming and either want the relationship to work or ambivalent about the relationship working, Mm -hmm. then I ask them to wait for a year before making any decisions. So let's go on the journey and Mm -hmm. let's see what we can get done in at least a year. I don't think that recovery happens in a year. Yeah. And I don't know that there's a time frame on recovery but I usually say three to five years. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a long time to go on this journey and heal myself from the betrayal I've ever had and heal myself from the betrayal I've inflicted and heal myself from the 
maladaptive behaviors that I've been using and to get healthy behaviors and to really unpack all of the patterns in the relationship on both sides yeah. that have happened and have become a norm and that are no longer sustainable. So that's what I ask is give it a year. Mm-hmm. And generally, if both clients are doing their work, it's not that we're happy. It's not that we have a great marriage. But now I can see, okay, this is something that I want to stay in still. Yeah. Move from ambivalence to at least a little bit of desire. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And what role does addiction play in this? Are the majority of people who are in this type of situation or infidelity, is it always addiction? Is it often addiction? What's the, the correlation or the causation there? Hmm. I don't know. I don't even know how to answer that question because I don't like to label addiction. Yeah. yeah. I Tell me more about that. I like to talk about the these are the things that I've done, mm-hmm. whether it's drugs, alcohol, gambling, shopping, uh, relationships, sex. These are the things that I've done to make it so that I can manage what's happening in my life that's, that is overwhelming for me emotionally. Mm. I feel like there's a stigma around addiction. Yeah. I feel that same way a little bit around codependency. And I, and I, I think that... Uh, codependency is I'm trying to have attached to connect mm-hmm. and I'm not getting connection. It's broken attachment somewhere. Uh-huh. So I'm going to start doing all this crazy making stuff to try to connect with you. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times in relation, the, the coupleships that come in to my office, the betrayed ap- appears codependent and the betrayer appears avoidant and with an addiction mm-hmm. and we can label and I just don't like to do that I feel like it it adds more shame in the process when there's so much shame in the room as it is as a single person I think a lot of my idealism mm-hmm. around being partnered or married has been shattered because I've had so many couples close to me mm. that have walked through infidelity in some way, shape, or form. And thankfully, a lot of the couples, you know, have done the hard work and stayed together and some have not. But I think that, I think this conversation feels heavy for me just because I know how many people are on this journey. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people probably don't even know. Like, I feel like it is a privilege to have been let in to my friends that have walked through it. But the, I think a lot of people go through this alone and don't know where to get help. And so I'm so glad that you do this work, but it just is so heavy. And I think that it is, I think I'm trying to, Think about even how it impacts me as a single person, you know, like mm-hmm. that, that. Do you feel like it's made you, um, I know you've said that you're like, it's kind of like opened your eyes, you have like eyes wide open and don't have as much illusion, but has it almost 
as it sometimes like turns oh, you so, off or made you avoid yeah, it. Yeah, it just makes me want to be so self-protective, yeah. you know, as a single person of like, yeah, yeah. I, I've made some good decisions that I'm, I'm not <laughs> in a place where I could be hurt like that. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think that's why I've been a little more quiet in this conversation yeah. is I just, I feel heavy for people walking through it. Yeah. You named something which reminded me why it's so important to have a group network, a group support, because so many people walk through this alone. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many times heard, I have not told one person that this is going on in my life. Mm. And I'm still showing up for my kids and all their things in school and church and work, and I'm doing all the things. And no one knows. But no one knows yeah. that I cry myself to sleep every night or every moment I'm alone, I'm in tears, and I'm mm. just barely keeping it together. And so when I can go into a group and be surrounded with other people that feel the same and that aren't judging me for the decisions I'm making, then I can uh, do my work. When I'm worried about being judged, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't do my work. There's no safety. Yeah. So I think as for all of us, whether we're single or not, Mm -hmm. to show up in our relationships without judgment and with acceptance is really powerful. And that's what I'm hearing you say is that I've shown up in my relationships and I haven't been judgmental. I've been a safe place for my friends. I think oftentimes I hear people say, I would never ever. If my husband did that to me, I would never, I would leave yeah. him so fast or I'd leave her so fast. I think fast. I thought that early on, you know, yeah. to be yeah. totally transparent of like, oh, I wouldn't put up with that. And yeah. and then you watch, you live life and watch people live life and you're like, oh, like who knows? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we build a tapestry. Our life is not just one thread. Yeah. It's a million threads woven together to make some something beautiful. And sometimes that tapestry has some rips and and flaws in it. Yep. But we don't throw the whole thing away. Mm. And I think it reminds me just of sort of the idea of kind of trauma-informed care of, you know, it, that you hearkening back to the beginning of the conversation too, where you said that it's like that there's underlying trauma that's causing these behaviors. And yeah. so it's not really about somebody being bad or good, it's about the fact that something's happened to them yeah. and that they're trying to survive and they've yeah. learned some harmful behaviors mm-hmm. in that process of survival. Yeah. I have, I, sometimes I have clients who are introduced to pornography at age four. Mm-hmm. So what, what else, you know, what's, of what course. are you supposed to do? Yeah. Of course. Right. When you're taught at age four that this is okay or the millions of people who have been sexually harmed mm-hmm. and taught that this is how you go through life. Yeah. Having now a son that yeah. hopefully it'll be a little while before I have to really think about his exposure to pornography. But like, what are sort of safeguards and, or conversations that parents should have as they think about raising kids, both boys and girls today. 
I think it's just really important to always be talking about it. There's so much, it's crazy, there's so much legislation going on right now as we speak Mm -hmm. around what can be taught to kids sexually. And I think that can be harming. I think about my own education and lack of education around sex and it i i just think it needs to be we need to be open with our children with each other around language and and make our make what i always wanted was my son to learn about sex for me instead of his buddies yeah yeah mm-hmm. they're going to learn about it where do you want them to learn i remember hearing an interview with um Michelle Obama, and she told her girls, she was, she said, if you have questions, I want you to come to me because your 12-year-old friend doesn't know any more than you do, and they're going to give you the wrong answer. Um, but just, I think it feels counterintuitive to a lot of us and maybe growing up in certain types of systems to hear, okay, the, if I talk about sex, I'm not going to, I think there's a fear of like taking away their innocence. But what I've learned even in my own life and my own story is that the lack of is sometimes more more hurtful or harmful yeah. of not having the information. Absolutely. Yeah. Are there resources you recommend on how to do that well? Yeah, I have a bunch of books in my office. I just don't remember what they are. Great. We'll put them in the show notes. Okay. I'll, I'll reach back out to you and get some, some resources that you might encourage people, both for parenting, and then I'd also love if there's any other resources for someone who's on either side of that equation, um, a betrayer or betrayed. That'd okay. be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And even how to have a healthy sort of view of sexuality. Yeah. I think it's, it, I was thinking towards the end of that other part that growing up so much in a purity culture. Yes. Where it was so taboo to talk about things that, I, it, it, like stepping into being more open and honest is just like, Awkward, yeah. You know, or like, still feels kind of taboo. Yeah, and you're like, oh no, I think this this is health. But like, how do we think in a healthy way about sexuality um, in today's day and age? Yeah. So there, this that's a whole nother podcast. It is. Yeah. Let's have you back because I feel like because what happens a lot in my office is I have the betrayed often has this really large sexual repertoire of what they're okay with and what they want sexually in a relationship. And the other partner has a much narrow sexual repertoire. And how do we navigate that? Mm. And I think so often in our culture, women have been really put in a double bind. Yeah. You need to be sexy, but you can't be sexual. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to sh- shut that part, that yeah. natural part of me that wants pleasure and intimacy and connection. I have to shut that down and yet then somehow be sexy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And then the purity culture that you're talking about, it's really hard to navigate. Yeah. A French Woman's Guide to Sex Over 50. Great book. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Okay. I love it. This has been so helpful. So helpful. I think as we wrap up, I'd love for you to leave us just with one piece of advice that maybe you would have for us all from your years of experience. My piece of advice would be that 
don't be surprised. The more work you do, the more you uncover. Mm. I find that all the time, no matter how many times I've done some work around different losses and pains that I have had, mm-hmm. I'll feel like, okay, I, I did it. I've cured myself. And then there's another thorn I got I to gotta pluck out. So what I, what I like about doing my own work is that I'm now at the point where I don't, ex- I don't think I'll ever be whole or healed. Mm-hmm. It's a journey. And I notice more often when I'm stepping into places that I don't want to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm a lot more aware of my own body and my own nervous system. And so I know when something's happening to me and why it's happening. And I can make a conscious choice to do something different now. Whereas before, years ago, I was more on autopilot and letting my nervous system just drag me here Mm. and there in places. That's good. I remember reading once from the Gottman Institute that people wait six years often when there's a problem in their marriage before seeking professional help. So what are some of the things that might we might see as warning signs to prompt us to speed up that timeline? I don't know that there are any real specific warning signs, mm-hmm. but what I always say is trust your gut. Mm. There's a reason that people call it a gut instinct. And what I find most often is that generally people knew for a long time that someone was wrong in their relationship. They just couldn't imagine that it would ever happen to me. I just couldn't imagine that he would ever do this to me or that she would ever do this to me. Mm. And so they don't look at what's really happening. That's helpful. Yeah. Thank you. So I'd say trust when your gut is telling you something, then ask the questions, say the things. And a lot of times in relationships where there's a betrayal happening in the relationship, there will be lots of different what we call gaslighting behaviors Mm. So turning the tables where you might ask me about something that's going on with me and I'm going to turn it around and make it your fault or I'm going to turn it about you and say what's what you don't trust me. Yeah. So that would be turning the tables, uh, blame, anger. I'm going to put a lot of defense mechanisms up so that we don't ever get to the issue. Yeah. And if that starts happening, then that's the time when you when you, it's a clear sign that you Something need some deeper. professional help. Professional help. You need to yeah, seek out professional good. help. That's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Debbie, uh, what do you have on the horizon? So I'm so excited about one of my new ventures with OnSite. OnSite has started uh, another adventure program. Oh, yes. yes. And it's fly fishing in Montana. <gasps> oh, my gosh. So we are doing a uh, group therapy and fly fishing I'm so excited because fly fishing is one of my passions. Yeah. And I use a lot of fishing analogies in my therapy work. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to take that out on the road to Montana in, I believe, August, September. So, so great. Yeah. So like a group of eight people. Yeah. Small group doing work and fishing. Yeah. We're going at a, a lodge in Montana 
healing waters. It's going to be so beautiful. That sounds awesome. Yeah, so come join us. Sign us up. And you don't need to know how to fish to go. You'll have a private guide that will help you learn how to fly fish. There you go. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thanks for sitting down with us. This was so great. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.